Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and lay out what the clowns are trying to do to you and what's coming next. Property prices are in, quote, free fall in dozens of major U.S. cities, with new buyers losing catastrophic amounts of money. Some areas, buyers have lost between $70,000 and $122,000 in just the past couple months. Much of it by first-time homebuyers who probably didn't have seventy grand to spare. That comes to roughly $1,000 per week, their punishment for braving a blue city in the worst mortgage rates in a generation. The number comes from Newsweek, citing a study by Point Two Homes that found prices are sliding in dozens of major markets, in some cases by double digits. So Memphis, for example, is down 17%. In fact, single-family homes are falling in 25 out of the top 100 housing markets in the U.S., and in 36 of the top 100 for condos. Those are favored by young families and the elderly. Of course, nationwide housing is still up, thanks to a frozen mortgage market, but in some cities, it is fairly dire. So in budding post-apocalyptic hellscape San Francisco, they dropped $122,500 in just a few months. Couldn't happen to a better crowd with Junior Hellscape Manhattan right behind at 70000 lost to Jerome Powell's adventures and in interest rates. Newsweek notes that a quarter of those buyers were first-timers, meaning young families trying to get a financial foothold. They're now very deep in the hole. In fact, many are now facing negative equity, meaning they owe more on the house than it's worth, as in their down payment is wiped out and they're now in hock to the bank. The wider problem here is the fading prospects for the next generation. So rising home equity has been the main thing rescuing Americans from a 20-year lost decade of productivity since 2000. So your earnings stalled, but at least you had the home equity. Thing is, even if that continues, home equity only works if you own a house. If the next generation is looking at renting for life, they lose the payback they were expecting for the permanently low interest rates. Already, you're looking at an entire cohort of people in their prime home buying age who will miss the boat altogether. So, first time home buyers at this point are an endangered species, making up just 26% of buyers last year. That's down from half a decade ago. According to the National Association of Realtors, the average age of a first time home buyer was 36 last year, up three years from the previous year and soaring from a decade ago. So how many people are we talking here? Returning to the NAR, just 60% of older millennials in their 40s own a house. At that age, 64% of Gen X own, 68% of boomers, and 73% of the silent generation. So spot the trend. Carried to the entire population, that comes to 16 million young families left behind renting for the rest of their lives. So what's next? The other day I described the Fed as stuffing an elephant into a canoe with no elegant way to get it off. They broke inflation, they're breaking the economy as we speak, and they've apparently cut off one of the last remaining wealth-building sources for young Americans. For millions of those young Americans, the American dream has become the American slog. High interest rates and punishing mortgages could last for a generation. So warns Jim Grant, one of the best analysts out there and noted expert on the Great Depression. Despite the Fed's laying out the champagne last week, in an interview with Forbes, Grant warns that payback 
for a decade of unsustainable cheap money will be brutal. And it could continue for many years, even decades. Now, Grant has followed the sordid goings-on of the Federal Reserve in his Interest Rate Observer for over 40 years. He is best known for predicting the 2008 crisis to a T, and he knows Austrian economics like the back of his hand. Grant argues the Fed went off the rails after 2008, launching 15 years of cheap money that blew a bubble that is in the process of popping. They blew it using near-zero interest rates that makes it cheap or free to borrow money, and they blew it with so-called quantitative easing, where the Fed goes out and buys everything in sight, minting fresh new money on Excel sheets and flooding it out as inflation. Together, these led to parabolic increases in debt, with corporate debt going from $7 trillion to $14 trillion, household debt going from 13 to 17 and federal debt going from $10 trillion to $34 trillion between 2008 and today. For those following along at home, that is $35 trillion in fresh debt, so half a million dollars for a family of four. Of course, a lot of that free money flooded into markets, setting off the party of the century. Housing doubled, stocks jumped sixfold, it was the everything bubble. Kind of like the 1920s. So what's next? So far, we have only seen the shoe drop on the bubble in regional banks and commercial real estate. Everything else is merrily floating on gossamer, partying like it is 1929. That's because houses are frozen since buyers won't sell. Stocks just got another bump of coke thanks to Jerome Powell's giant punch bowl. Meanwhile, companies are chomping at the bit to borrow yet more. Even consumers are plowing deeper into debt with credit cards just hitting a near record and buy now, pay later, soaring in double digits over the year. Put it together, and Jim thinks we are headed for a crunch, as the Fed keeps rates high because of inflation for longer than the market expects, meaning all that debt will become unsustainable for consumers, companies, and the banks who lent it all. As Mark Spitznagel sums up, this is, quote, the greatest credit bubble in human history. In recent videos, I've mentioned that 15 years of easy money historically buys you a permanent zombie economy, Japan being the poster child. The corporate bankruptcies here in America are already soaring up 30% on the year, hitting 516 in the nine months to September, which is higher than any full year since the 2008 crisis. If Jim is right, we are due for decades of slow growth, high mortgages, stubborn inflation, and periodic financial crashes, all punctuated by trillion-dollar handouts from the Fed and its enablers in Washington. U.S. Steel, once the largest company on Earth, is being sold for scrap. Thanks to a federal regulatory and trade agenda that is wiping out what remains of honest work. The once crown jewel of American manufacturing, founded in 1901 by Andrew Carnegie and linchpin of the arsenal of democracy, agreed to be acquired by Nippon Steel. Now, back in the 80s, when I grew up amid Ross Perot's giant sucking sound, this would have been the story of the year. But at this point, the loss of a manufacturing crown jewel is just another Tuesday. So first, the details. It's not a done deal. Climate groups are still trying to block it to wring out protection money from the steel industry. And John Fetterman promises to do what he can. They promise to keep headquarters in Pittsburgh, but of course they would promise that until the deal goes through. 
Bigger picture is why is it just another Tuesday that we lose a manufacturing crown jewel? And that's easy, a predatory federal government that imposes tens of thousands of regulations mandating everything from green rules, diversity-driven labor rules, and alleged quality rules that are frequently lobbied by large companies to shut down their smaller competitors. These costs sum to pretty shocking numbers. According to a recent study by the National Association of Manufacturers, federal regulation alone cost large manufacturers, that's more than 100 employees, an average of $25,000 per employee. That's just for regulations. And that's roughly half their salary. For smaller companies with fewer than 50 workers, it's more than double that at $50,000 per employee for federal regulations. In other words, they destroy literally more than the employees make. Put differently, it costs so much to run a factory in America that only a masochist would dare or a crony who's actually just milking taxpayers. The fact that regulations wipe out the little guy should not be surprising. That is the whole point of regulation. Indeed, one of the very first manufacturing regulations, the Meat Inspection Act of 1906, was specifically lobbied by large meat packers to cartelize and shut out the mom-and-pop butchers. Problem is, sure, the big guys take a 25 hit, the little guys take 50, they're gone. So far, so good. The big guys can have it all to themselves. But spot the problem. Foreigners do not pay 25, they do not pay 50, they pay nothing. They bounce merrily along, outcompeting our crony megacorporations that have lobbied themselves into oblivion. Eventually, like U.S. Steel, they get acquired, rewarding the very managers who bought the regulations that killed the company. When the smoke clears, the small guys are gone, the big guys are gone, but a whole lot of people made a whole lot of money making it happen. So what's next? We are losing an entire way of life. The communities left behind spiral into oblivion. At best, the young flee. At worst, they turn to fentanyl or suicide. Yet Washington just keeps at it, figuring welfare payments will make up the gap while cutting trade deals that carry every last drop of water for Wall Street, Hollywood, or Pharma, but leave export access for manufacturers to wither on the vine. A word from our sponsor. IRA is an investment vehicle that can save you a lot on taxes if used correctly. With Unchained, you can hold real Bitcoin in your IRA, and it's the only company where you hold the keys and can verify that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated or relent out. We've recently seen that futures-based ETFs dramatically underperform holding Bitcoin, so why settle for an underperforming asset? Go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. Joe Biden and his minions want to seize and weaponize artificial intelligence. Not just to censor speech that is so 2023, but to seize control of trillions of investment dollars and steer them towards whatever crony revolution he's vote-buying this week. A few days ago, Treasury Secretary Yellen gave a speech announcing she would be making control of AI a top priority for 2024, using so-called financial system vulnerabilities as the excuse. Namely, alleged racial bias in lending and so-called model risk, where investors all pile into the same asset like lemmings. This comes on the heels of Joe Biden's executive order, which mandated a whole-of-government seizure of AI, again allegedly for security, privacy, and diversity, but in reality to turn AI into a tool for government control 
and propaganda while selling any commercialization to the highest bidder. I did a recent video when SEC head Gensler read off the same script, how it is scapegoating their own foul-ups, but more important, it's their excuse to take over AI. Because they know they cannot survive in free speech, and because tens of trillions of investment capital are at stake if government can control allocation of financial capital. The idea, their excuse, is that AI is a black box, nobody knows how it figures things out, so we need political commissars to watch it at all times, make sure it doesn't think anything racist, or say, recommend you buy WeWork stock at $400. Of course, one might ask why a political commissar would know how to invest, given the guys who build financial AIs actually have an incentive to be right. So at best, having that commissar on your AI team would smother any benefits. The models would be politically correct, but factually wrong. That means foreigners would still be free to use their own AI to actually make the money we left on the table. Granted, we would keep the diversity and climate biases directing our retirement savings into vote-buying black holes. Note, this all goes to Yellen's model risk. It is hard to imagine a larger model risk than government mandating how you invest, according to whatever Joe Biden needs funded this week. We'd be tripping over the windmills while mom-and-pop machine tools shops would go begging for loans. In fact, we know this because it happened before. Leading into 2008, financial regulators demanded that banks lend to underprivileged or redlined areas. Banks obeyed because you do what your regulator says, just like in China. So banks made loans based not on prospects for repayment, but on demographics. What could go wrong? Well, fast forward a few years and we had a historic avalanche of bad mortgages. At one point, nearly a trillion worth of mortgages were either delinquent or in active foreclosure. Now take all that, multiply by the trillions in all the Black Rocks that will be taking orders from their in-house commissars to decide how much goes into diversity, climate, and cricket farms. So what's next? Governments all around the world are trying as hard as they can to control AI because of censorship, but now to direct, ideally, all the financial capital in the world. If they succeed, your retirement savings will be squandered on a series of 2008 crises, while our economy turns into a Soviet landscape of government-approved white elephants looming over the people scrambling in the shadows with what's left. How many bankruptcies does it take to build back better? With Joe Biden's signature blend of malign neglect burning up the economy, the U.S. court system just released fresh numbers on bankruptcies. They are not good. In fact, one analyst, Albert Edwards, called them, quote, truly bonkers. Total filings were up 13% on the year, hitting over 430,000 cases. Corporate bankruptcies soared 30% on the year, hitting over 17,000. For major corporate bankruptcies, it's the highest tally since the 2008 crisis. Note, this is all before the recession hits, whether it's a soft landing or the hard stuff. And so, despite the $8 trillion pumped into the economy with stimulus, which our grandkids will be paying off with interest, companies are dropping like flies. Victims of rampant inflation, ongoing regulatory harassment, and stubborn stagnation in an economy held aloft on a gossamer string of maxed-out credit cards and blowing the 401k money on buy now, pay later. Already, defaults on both corporate bonds and speculative-grade bonds have tripled on last year alone. And Goldman Sachs predicts there's a lot more to come, 
predicting a wave of, quote, zombies killed off as debt-laden companies scramble to refinance $800 billion of debt next year and $1.1 trillion in 2025. Even as banks cut back on loans to protect their gutted portfolios of government debt and commercial real estate. New capital rules called Basel IV will make it worse, pressuring banks to lop off another tranche of zombies. Reuters notes the problem is worldwide, suggesting contagion with a tidal wave of, quote, zombie businesses that were just barely holding on with low rates. They were barely holding on with low rates. They are going off the edge now meaning either mass layoffs or mass losses to their banks as the debts are written down. Apparently, major banks are already doing a brisk business in debt restructuring, meaning they forgive part of the debt so the borrower can pay at least something. They do this because otherwise the loan goes on the bad loan pile, and they have to tell markets and regulators about it and set aside capital as a buffer. At this point, even the private equity is pulling out that last refuge of scoundrels the secret room behind the cash register where money can be had for a price. Note, all of this is happening with a global credit crunch already hitting governments. So I mentioned in recent videos how federal debt service is soaring because new debt is so much more expensive than old debt that was incurred during the easy money days. Of course, governments can get all the money they want. After all, they're bidding with your life savings, generously fortified by an unlimited money printer in the basement of the New York Fed, meaning government will still get the money but there won't be much left for the companies or the consumers whose dwindling savings are holding the whole thing together with bubblegum and bailing wire. So what's next? We are coming into a perfect storm for bankruptcy, stubborn inflation, spreading stagnation, strangled banks, and nervous governments scrounging the couch cushions for every last dime. It will get worse as the recession unfolds, soft or not. With Christmas around the corner, what would it take to repeat the Great Depression? My base case on the economy has been that we are repeating the 1970s stagflation with a first bout of high inflation, followed by a period of rapid GDP growth and calming inflation, you are here, that ends in a second even worse, stagflation. One that could go on a long time, considering the last one in the 70s only ended with a brutal series of engineered recessions that cost Jimmy Carter his job. In other words, Washington won't make that mistake again. Next time, they'll probably just let it rip. All pretty dire, but there's actually another shoe to drop, an even worse outcome that, going by my commenters, a lot of people are worried about. A depression. Meaning an extended period not just of stagnation, but a dramatic plunge in our living standard. So soup kitchens, kids without shoes, former middle-class breadwinners riding trains as hobos in search of work. So it is worth asking, what would it take to get a depression? The key here is that depressions do not fall from the sky. They are not divine retribution for exploiting the proletariat. No, depressions are made in Washington. Namely, they're made of a never-ending series of government interventions that ultimately scare investors and businesses into what's called a capital strike, meaning they freeze in place, they cut investment, they might even shut down because they don't know what the rules of the game will be. They prudently stand down and try to cut their losses. It's exactly what happened in the 1930s as FDR threw the kitchen sink of regulations mandating everything from above market wages, which forced companies to lay off workers, to political commissars deciding what price you can sell at, indeed deciding if you'll have to sell your product for a loss, 
All of this while FDR hiked income tax to ultimately 94%, meaning if you somehow dodged all the regulatory bullets and all the mandates, you ended up with six cents on the dollar. So why bother? Just keep your powder dry and wait and see. In raw numbers, investment under FDR went from 16% of GDP in 1929 to less than 2%, so a fall of almost 90%. That's how you get to the kids without shoes while dad is hopping the train to the next soup kitchen. The great economist Bob Higgs coined a fantastic term to describe this, regime uncertainty, as in business and entrepreneurs no longer know what the rules of the game will be tomorrow, next month, next year. They may not even know what they are today. Only an idiot hires new workers, who are an ongoing expense, or invests in new assembly lines, also a cost, if you have no idea if you'll be forced to fire them tomorrow or sell it for scrap. So what's next? Joe Biden is still a long ways from FDR, who H.L. Mencken dubbed a Fuhrer peddling envy and hatred. Don't get me wrong, Joe Biden is certainly dumb enough to copy FDR, but we won't see the truly stupid ideas until we actually hit the recession. That's when you get the price controls, the top-down dictates, probably a universal basic income next time around to put another 5 million Americans on the couch permanently. In the meantime, the rule of thumb is the dumber the solutions, the closer we are to a depression. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. MoneyMetals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to MoneyMetals.com. Argentina's new anarcho-capitalist president, Javier Malay, comes in like a lion, with some shock therapy worthy of the name, in what was heretofore one of the worst-run countries on Earth. For the long-suffering people of Argentina, it's an early Christmas present. Just a week in office, and to the cheers of chainsaw-wielding fans, Malay's economy minister, Luis Caputo, rolled out their inaugural package of 10 emergency reforms to get those chainsaws rolling. First up is a 50% devaluation of the peso, so its official government price matches the real-world price, its so-called black market price. Next is the government itself. Malay plans to cut in half the number of government ministries. It's equivalent to shutting down 13 cabinets in the U.S., which would be a good start. This will cut one-third of the political positions in Argentina, most of which are corrupt. Speaking of corrupt politicians, Malay will cancel all public works that have not yet begun. Those are near universally corrupt. He will reduce transfers to provinces that are similarly corrupt and cancel all labor contracts made in the past year, because once again, they are typically payola to the former regime's supporters. Finally, Malay plans to scrap the so-called CIRA system so that businesses don't need to ask permission to import things, and he'll cut government ad spending, propaganda spending, along with energy and transportation subsidies that cause nationwide shortages. The total reduction in government spending is 3% of GDP. That would be about $700 billion a year in U.S. terms. Or since Washington likes to count things by the decade to make them seem bigger, $7 trillion in spending cuts. It wasn't everything, of course. No word on dollarization, which is taking a backseat to heading off near-term financial crisis, since that would evaporate his public support. 
And some are uncomfortable with the number of technocrat retreads that Malay is keeping on, also to head off financial crisis. Meanwhile, lifestyle magazine The Economist complained about his temporary tariffs, new child benefits, and increase in food benefits to the poorest. Still, compared to what Argentinians usually get in a president, in fact, compared to what Americans currently have in a president, it all sounds pretty fantastic. The opposition, of course, went nuts, threatening to riot in the streets to which Malay's security minister announced they will use force to clear anybody who blocks roads and cut off the rioters from all social benefits, which is something we might think about doing here in America. So what's next? Given Malay's party only controls 10 to 15 percent of Congress, he will win or lose on the streets, on public opinion. So far, I'd say he's pushing the Overton window of liberty as far as it can go to keep public support and disarm the violent left-wing unions that have driven out every non-leftist president but one since 1983. In short, Malay has made an excellent first move, but there are many moves to go before Argentina is out of the fire. 2023 has been an eventful year at the North Pole as it faced a series of economic and financial crises under the leadership, or what passes for leadership, of the senile reindeer-sniffing old man Winter, whose friends, of course, bought the election. At one point, there was even chatter that toys may not ship at all, something we last saw in 2020 at the height of the supply chain crisis when even the quasi-naughty got coal, well, carbon footprints, in their stockings. Few of us will ever forget those days of the randomized naughty or nice list when even the reindeer games were cancelled. But now, with the holidays approaching, many are breathing a sigh of relief after the recent Supreme Elf decision cleared the way for the charismatic lion-maned Santa to win a landslide victory, promising to take a chainsaw to the crony special interests that have latched like parasites onto the hard-working shires of the North. The year kicked off with a series of bank runs that had old man's press flunkies out in force, stammering through handouts for the influential pixie dust industry, all ending in an alphabet soup of trillion dollar, or trillion pixie dust, government bailouts. The chaos continued through the summer as rampant inflation turned to fears of recession. The pointy-eared unions went on strike over electric sleigh mandates, and key central shires emptied amid an epidemic of light-fingered elves hopped up on moon crystals amid chronically understaffed town watches. News was dominated by Sleigh Lady in July, who first noticed that Mother Lover is not real, and then, just a few months later, real aliens in Mexico. Meanwhile, we saw ongoing threats to pixie dust itself as the South Pole pushed its so-called BRICS coalition, aiming to deliver construction materials and petroleum byproducts under the tree. Thankfully, unlike in 2020, we could actually talk about all these things. Thanks to an eccentric tycoon who witches on stars and thinks free speech is the ultimate guarantor of elven rights. The forces of Mordor have not given up, but actually being able to speak has been a breath of fresh air to those of us who care about the future of the North. So what's next? What's next depends whether the people of the Shires can stay informed, can stay passionate, and focused on protecting our rights against the crony parasites that have burrowed into our institutional fabric. Burrowed despite commanding almost no public support that they haven't either bought or indoctrinated to captive little elves in public schools. Happily, hundreds of millions have woken up, with many more coming every day. We are still outnumbered and we're still comically out-resourced, 
But once they hear the truth, the public is on our side. And so now begins the hard work. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanonch.com for videos and articles. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.